0: This is Farah, and you're listening to the Be for Bacchus podcast, where we talk about wine stories from the Fertile Crescent. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I'm so sorry that I have been MIA for so long. I did not plan to be missing that long, but a lot has happened in my personal life. Um, But I'm back, but I'm going to be gone again for a bit. So let me explain. The podcast has been quiet because at the very end of March, I left Beirut and I moved to Southern California. I've been here for a few months and it's still unclear what I'll be doing next from over here. What I do know is that I'm going to keep this platform going, but I'll be taking the next two months to work on season three. Now, season two wasn't supposed to end the way that it did. I had a lot more in store to edit and put together, but I uprooted my life and it's taken a bit longer to kind of find my groove again. Um, Now, I know back in 2020, the plan had been to stop in July, work on some episodes in bulk and then come back in October. That was completely thrown out of the window when the August 4th explosion happened and Beirut was completely devastated and I could not think about the podcast. I could not care about the podcast. Everything was about trying to get the word out about what was happening on the ground. Now, I want to try again this year to do that same plan where I'll take a couple of months, try and work on a couple of episodes at a time so that I can consistently release episodes for you guys instead of trying to play catch up. Now that I'm here in a new environment, I'm hoping I'll be able to buckle down and get back in the mindset to do this right. Like last year's plan, season three will be back in October on the podcast launch anniversary. A new episode will drop once a month with eight episodes total, and any bonus episodes I managed to put together will be for subscribers only. Sorry. So become a subscriber on Patreon. Speaking of, I have some shoutouts to do. A few months ago, I changed the structure, so now there is only one tier on Patreon, and it's $5 a month and you're a member of the Backus membership, you get access to all the extras, all the fun stuff, all the mailers and the newsletters and the newspaper and a whole bunch of stuff. Please go check that out. When I did this and then did a special offer in April, this family grew a lot bigger. There are a lot of new names and I am so so grateful and like kind of in shock. So here we go. Thank you to Kate, Karim, Sarah, Graham, Libby, Hassan, Pierre, Magdalena, Samira, Hani, Jamila, Dima, Mo, Sam, Dima, Mariam, Heather, Renna, Maria, Jill, T. Julia, Eddie, Jason, Miriam, Mary Catherine, Sandra, Christy, and Yusuf. Thank you all so much. I am so happy to have you, and I am having so much fun putting together all these mailers for you guys. I really hope you guys are enjoying getting them too. Also, I would like to point out that this is the first time I use this microphone in this coat closet that I turned into a podcast studio. I mean, it's not really a studio. I'm sitting on a shag rug behind a curtain, but I still feel pretty fancy. So So please let me know if this sounds better or if I'm just kidding myself here, but I feel good about it. Now, today's episode isn't research based and it's not an interview, but I just couldn't let you guys go months without anything. I really wanted to release something, remind people that, yes, the podcast is still here. It's coming back. And just because I left Lebanon doesn't mean that the podcast has been left behind. So naturally, as many people who come to the States, um, I was on eBay. (laughs) And I found this old issue of National Geographic from 1970. And it had a substantial article about Lebanon loaded with photos I had never seen. Obviously, I bought it, and I bought a couple of other issues as well. And now I'm going to read it to you, because this article, this article is quite interesting. Um, to to hear someone write about Lebanon in the 70s, so basically before the Civil War and before everything that came after it, is a bit wild, as you will see. After I read it the first time, I tried to find the author, although I'm not even sure if he's still with us. I know that the photographer became pretty well-established, but I couldn't seem to track down either of them. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask, what was this trip like? Do you remember it? But um, yeah, no luck there. Now, before I read this, I want to make it clear that I'm not going to correct anything. I'm not going to add any explainers or jump in and give reactions or thoughts on anything. I'm just going to read the article as is. And then if you have thoughts on it, please email me, DM me, we can talk about it. Maybe we'll start an email thread and we can all discuss it. That would be really fun. But I don't want to influence how you hear this article yet. It would be a really interesting conversation for all of us to have together, though. Okay. Lebanon. Little Bible land in the crossfire of history. By William S. Ellis. There is much tension in the city, Mustafa Khalil told me. Look around you, people are whispering. They usually shout. Mustafa, a young Lebanese printer, leaned over the oilcloth covered table of a Beirut coffee house, where we had been sitting for more than three hours, drinking green tea and puffing on Ergil's water pipes. I hope I'm wrong, he continued. Maybe it's just the weather, all this rain we've been having. He wasn't wrong. Trouble began less than a week later, on one of those days peculiar to the eastern Mediterranean, when the setting sun reaches under low-lying storm clouds to skip its light across the surface of the sea and engulf the coast in an orange-gold glow. The violence occurred in the Muslim quarter of this capital city. I could hear the sporadic firing of rifles and the excited shouts of people scurrying for cover. The stench of burning rubber filled the air as flames devoured overturned army vehicles. On that April day, Lebanon counted more than 15 dead and 100 injured in demonstrations over the government's attitude toward Arab commandos, including members of the ultra-militant Al-Fatah guerrilla force, who are pledged to work for the destruction of Israel. Government security forces clashed in the streets with those who demanded that the commandos be allowed freedom to conduct raids on the Jewish state from Lebanese soil. The cabinet fell. A curfew went into effect over much of the country. Soldiers patrolled city streets. Newsmen from around the world converged on the seaside terrace of Beirut's famed Hotel Saint-Georges, a favorite journalistic vantage point on the Arab world. Lebanon, only 26 years old as a fully independent republic, came face to face with a threat to its survival as an enclave of individuality in a section of the world where Arab nationalism tends to transcend borders. Much of the agitation in Lebanon centered in the Palestinian refugee camps, in which recruitment of commandos was being carried out by, among others, Syrian army regulars. I visited one of these camps, Burj al-Barajne, on Beirut's outskirts, and found it seething with explosive anger directed as much against Lebanon's indecisiveness as against Israel. One of the refugees, a man ill and aged far beyond his years, beckoned me into his tin-roofed shack. He was born in Palestine, he told me, and like 800,000 other Arabs, left his home in 1948 when his country became Israel. He showed me a crudely made bomb. I asked him if he would use it in the streets of Beirut in support of the Arab commando cause. I have the will to use it, he replied, but not the strength. Later that day, after obtaining a special pass from the army, I walked through the empty streets of Beirut. It was mid-morning, and under normal conditions, the city throbs with activity at this time, but not with a curfew on. The soldier confronted me and asked to see my pass. Then we walked into an alleyway, where he retrieved a brass pot from a shoebox and started to brew thick Turkish coffee over a fire in a large can. I asked him his thoughts on the troubles. We have very special problems in Lebanon, he said. If we let the commandos do as they want, then we open ourselves up to attack from the other side, from Israel. But if we tell them they can no longer carry out their raids from here, then we anger those of our people who feel that Arab unity must come before all else. He handed me an egg cup of coffee and suggested that it tastes best when slurped. We Lebanese are skillful in the use of compromise for survival. We've had to learn to do that, to zig and zag, to give a little and take a little. And we've always managed to hold on to our identity. But this time, I don't know. I don't know. There's an old Arab saying that goes, my brother and I against our cousin, my cousin and I against the alien. Right now we can't tell our brothers from our cousins. Everyone seems to be a mother-in-law. The end of summer brought new violence to the country as commandos sought to escape the cold of their mountain retreats by moving into some villages of central and southern Lebanon. Again, there were deaths and injuries and political upheaval. This time, the guerrillas made daring attacks against government installations. In neighboring Syria, a large force of armed men, backed by tanks and artillery, massed along the border, raising the specter of a full-blown war among Arabs. Lebanon accepted an offer from the United Arab Republic to mediate the troubles, and a fragile skirmish-marred calm settled over the country. Almost a year after the first outbreak of violence, Lebanon remained burdened with a terrible uncertainty about the future. But for all that, the rifle fire, the bombings, the tragedy of Arab fighting Arab, spring had come to Lebanon, that troubled year, as it always had, amid the fragrance of the budding jasmine. On one of those perfumed days, in May, my cousins and I left the Beirut-Tripoli road, at a place where it lies wedged between the sea and the shadows of purple mountains. And there we listened to a wandering man make music on an ancient instrument. Zik, 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 the plaintive screech seemed to invoke all the sorrows of Lebanon's dilemma. But the man, he was short and squat and wore an old military garment with torn epaulets, smiled as he sawed a bow across the single string of the rabab. He asked where we were going, and I told him to Tripoli, to visit the house where my mother was born. Ah! Your mother is from Lebanon, and you are here to see the places she knew as a child. For that, I make happy music. Zik, zuk In one respect, my journey to Lebanon was indeed a quest for the settings of an immigrant parent's remembrances. And, searching, I found them all. From the piece of the Mediterranean beach where she once played, digging Roman coins from the sand, to the dock in Beirut from which she departed on the long one-way voyage to America. Few countries of comparable size lose as many of their sons and daughters through immigration. More than 100,000 live in the United States. It is often said that Lebanese living outside the country outnumber those living in it. Khartoum or Kansas City, Sao Paulo or Sydney, they are there. Some immigrants return in later life for a visit. Most do not. Almost all, however, retain strong emotional ties with the country. They remember the soft, green look of the land, for unlike its Near Eastern neighbors, None of Lebanon is given over to desert. Rather, there are mountains, high and cool and flogged with horsetail waterfalls. There are valleys gone lush on the sweet soil. And there is the Bay Scalp shoreline, where the long corridor of the Mediterranean comes to a close with a warm pearl over golden sand. Jesus walked among these surroundings. Here, too, in mythology, Venus met Adonis and St. George slew his dragon. Many Lebanese even assigned their country a role in the Old Testament drama of Jonah and the Whale. The prophet, they say, was cast up on the beach about 20 miles south of Beirut. Despite all its pastoral qualities, the villages, the stream-veined scenery, the shepherd and the field tranquility, Lebanon is best known for the cauldron of tireless vitality that is its capital city. Cosmopolitan and chic, sophisticated and sinister, restless and resourceful, Beirut is all of these and more. A city where the life not only of Lebanon But of much of the near east boils and bubbles about a fourth of lebanon's two million seven hundred thousand residents cluster in beirut and it seemed that all of them were up and out before dawn on my first morning in the city knots of traffic filled the intersections and the ceaseless blast of horns cleaved the air like karate chops to the ear pedestrian traffic spilled from the sidewalks into the gutters making it necessary to walk sideways using the shoulder as a wedge to keep moving through the crowds over the city climbed jets from the fleet of Lebanon-based Middle East Airlines, one of some 30 carriers serving Beirut International Airport. Down at dockside, hundreds of trucks waited to take on shipborne cargo being routed overland through Beirut to Saudi Arabia as a result of the closing of the Suez Canal by the Israeli war. I sat with my two cousins, Nicholas Fadel and Robert Mushbahani, at a sidewalk cafe on Hamra, Beirut's Via Veneto, and felt the vigor and intrigue of this young old city oozed through its steel and concrete pores. Among those who strolled past our table were men with secrets to sell and women of international society fame. A slender, casually-dressed young man stopped at a newsstand to scan headlines of some of Beirut's twenty-four daily newspapers, and I recognized him as the son of a deposed king. "'Lebanon has always been a favorite place of exile,' Robert said. I remember my father telling me that not long after the Russian Revolution, he went to a restaurant here in Beirut, and the waiter who served him was a former admiral in the Tsar's navy. Both Robert and Nicholas speak nearly flawless English. However, we often spoke in Arabic, a language I learned more through osmosis than through study. On such thoroughfares as Ruhamra, Beirut shows itself as a capital of worldly ways, of smartness and cultural richness. Among institutions of higher learning is the renowned American University of Beirut, now beginning its second century of educating leaders of the Arab world. Beirut also prides itself on its cinemas, its fashionable dress shops, its velvet padded cubbyholes brimming with golden trinkets for sale, its flower stalls, and its restaurants running the gamut of international cuisine. It has many nightclubs and cabarets. But for entertainment on the grand scale, none can match the Casino du Liban. As a tourist attraction, the casino, which looks down on the sea from a hill 15 miles north of Beirut, outdraws all else in the country. It dazzles visitors with marble and crystal, fountains and flowers, and the suave busyness of tuxedoed groupiers. It is also the place where an extravaganza to boggle the eye unfolds each evening. Packaged in Paris at a cost of one million five hundred dollars the three-hour show features a whole menagerie as well as 110 human performers. White stallions gallop across the stage. Attendants lead an elephant through the audience. The floor in the spectator section suddenly separates to reveal a flowing stream on which an authentic jungle steamboat appears. Fire, smoke, and all. Performers, their bodies painted gold and silver, descend from the ceiling in huge cage-like crystal ornaments. A great transparent ball rose up from the depths of the stage, and as I watched it, I thought that this was tame indeed compared to what had gone before. But then I noticed a man inside the ball. Riding a motorcycle. Well, how do you like it? asked Saad Kiwan, a casino official. I told him I was overwhelmed. But for every muted click of a casino roulette wheel, hundreds of dice tumble across backgammon boards set up on boxes on the street corners of Beirut. And for every Rue Hamra, there are dozens of streets such as Rue Ghalrul, an alley like passageway in an old quarter, where lamb carcasses hang in the doorways of butcher shops. Flies own the air there. And garbage fills the gutters, the sidewalks are communal beds, and the coffee houses are breeding grounds for political coups. Lebanon, then, is a nation of sharp contrasts and delicately balanced compromises. By tradition, the population is regarded as more or less evenly divided between Christians and Muslims, and an unwritten covenant decrees the presidency to a Maronite Christian and the premiership to a Sunni Muslim. Cabinet posts and seats in the 99-member parliament are likewise filled on a basis of religious as well as regional apportionment. In most foreign affairs, neutrality is such an unimpeachable virtue that an ex-premier once declined to endorse a course of action because, as he claimed, that would be positive neutrality. Lebanon's devotion to neutrality springs in large measure from the country's role as the commercial, financial, and transportation capital of most of the Near East. The profit motive is strong. In offices all through Beirut, men are forever picking up telephones and concluding transactions of such complexity and boldness as to give pause to even the most audacious of entrepreneurs. Consider, for example, the Lebanese trader who sold some French-made pianos to a Brazilian merchant accepting a shipment of peanuts from Senegal as payment. He then sold the peanuts to a German firm with a stipulation that he be paid in US dollars. Such are the wheelings and dealings which long ago gave rise to a proverb about the Lebanese businessman. He can make a wine cellar out of one grape. This instinct for business is something we develop at an early age, one of my cousins told me. A foreign lady once visited a kindergarten here and asked one of the youngsters, a boy, how much is two and two, to which he replied, are you buying or selling? Unlike many Arab states, Lebanon has no oil, although it does play a vital role in this trade because two oil pipelines, one from Saudi Arabia and the other from Iraq, terminate on its coast. With meager natural resources and almost no heavy industry, the country sustains its prosperity on what economists call invisible income. On paper, there is scant economic justification for Lebanon's existence. Imports, outweigh exports, in value by as much as five to one. It's a miracle, declared Paul Van Zeeland, an economist who was invited by the Lebanese government to study the country's fiscal structure more than a decade ago. I can't understand it, but my advice to you, since things are going so well, is don't ask too many questions or try to do anything about the situation. Let it go on. And so it has continued. Lebanon, with more than 70 banks acting as clearinghouse for a great flow of surplus capital from nearby oil-rich states. Lebanon, where Kuwaiti and other Arab millionaires have invested more than $85 million in new apartment buildings, no matter that many of the units, with rentals ranging up to $1,000 a month, remain vacant. Lebanon, the not-forgotten homeland, to which immigrants send back about $120 million each year, mostly as gifts to relatives. And Lebanon, international transfer point for goods that fetch more than $50 million in customs receipts annually. Tourism also makes a major contribution to the financial well-being of the country. But when trouble erupts, such as the crisis at the time of my visit, the tourists stay away. No one wants to spend a holiday in his hotel room, wondering when the curfew is going to be lifted, said Tony asad a trilingual taxi driver who claims to have 50 relatives in Brooklyn. He speeded up the cab so that I would not be late for an appointment with His Excellency Shah Hello, President of the Republic since 1964. As President Helo talked to me about the troubled situation in his country, he was generally critical of what he feels is Washington's pro-Israel stance in the Arab-Israeli conflict. He warned that this could endanger the close ties between Lebanon and the United States. Many of our students go to the States, he said, and many American companies invest in Lebanon. But cultural and economic cooperation cannot exist without political cooperation. Still, He went on to speak glowingly about the United States as a country of great hospitality, a country open to many, and when an aide whispered to the president that my mother was born in Lebanon, he smiled as if to reassure me that Lebanese-American relations were in no danger of imminent collapse. The hotel elevator operator offered me greetings of the morning and then said, Come as return to the land of your mother's birth. The curfew is lifted. Lebanon is still Lebanon, alhamdulillah. Outside, from the fashionable Avenue de Petit to the muddy, fetid paths in the refugee-occupied shantytowns, activity on the streets was revving up to its normal frenzy. From the sea and from the air, tourists once again began to descend on Lebanon. As long as 4,000 years ago, people were coming into the country from other areas. At that time, they came from somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula. They called themselves Canaanites. The Greeks called them Phoenicians. They settled along the coast in the great city-states of Tyre and Sidon and Biblos and set out from there in their cargo vessels to engage in trade as far away as Africa and the British Isles. From these Semitic-speaking people who carried the wood of Lebanon cedars to Egypt, the world obtained its first truly phonetic alphabet. The Lebanese, I found, cherish this heritage. Many speak of themselves not as Arabs or Muslims or Christians or even Lebanese, but with emphatic pride. As Phoenicians. Could I then claim to be part Phoenician? Linked ancestrally perhaps to one who manned an oar on a swift pentaconter, a fifty oared galley, or faced the wind and the swan's neck poop of a beamy merchantman? A heady thought indeed. With their civilization flourishing along the coastal strip of Lebanon, the Phoenicians by the 9th century BC had established colonies in the western Mediterranean. Carthage was the most famous. Within a hundred years, however, Phoenicia was conquered by the Assyrians, and the march of invading armies started. Next came the Babylonians, followed by the Persians, Macedonians, Romans, Byzantines, Arab Caliphs, Crusaders, Egyptian Mamelukes, and Ottoman Turks. The French, who had occupied the country since World War I under a League of Nations mandate, proclaimed Lebanon an independent state in 1941, but then suspended the action until 1943. Not until 1946 were all French troops withdrawn. The Romans, more than all the others, erected structures to match the beauty of the land. At Beirut, they established a law school to rival those in Athens and Alexandria, and the city became known as the Nurse of Laws. But their finest monuments were raised at Baalbak, about 40 miles northeast of Beirut. There, at that heathen stronghold named for the Canaanite deity Baal, the Romans built temples honoring Jupiter, Venus, and Bacchus. What remains of this acropolis today represents as handsome a collection of Roman architecture as may be found anywhere. On a summer day in 1922, a group of Europeans who were excavating at Baalbak took time from their work to recite poetry while gathered amid the ruins. Their words rang in the setting with acoustical clarity, so they decided to give a performance there. Thus was born the famous Baalbak festival. Now, each summer in July and August, Top companies from throughout the world, such as the Comédie Française and Britain's Royal Ballet, participate in a cultural ritual at the same place where others, in ancient times, took part in the rituals of cults. Their splendor rouged in soft theatrical lights. The ruins provide a striking setting for the arts. Lebanon is swollen with the leavings of past civilizations. Entire cities lie buried, and under them, other, older cities. Little wonder, then, that Emir Maurice Hub, director of the nation's Department of Antiquities, is a man submerged in work. I talked with Emir as we walked through the ruins of Tyre, ancient city of the southern coast. As an island fortress, which the Phoenicians called Queen of the Waters, Tyre survived a 13-year siege by King Nebuchadnezzar. Alexander the Great was able to capture it only after building a connecting causeway from the mainland. We have a problem here in Tyre, Ymir told me. The Roman ruins we have excavated are too important to destroy in order to get to the even more important Phoenician ruins under them. We stepped onto a 4th century AD road of marble paving and could see, here and there, fragments of a mosaic road from an earlier period. Mr. Schab pointed out numerous Roman thermal baths and cisterns. Stone balls made for the catapults of Alexander lay neatly stacked in pyramids. The necropolis uncovered at Tyre held more than 300 sarcophagi, many of them made of marble and ornamented with elaborate bas-reliefs. Even now, they are scattered over a large area of the ruins. And on the ground all around them is an incredible litter of skulls and bones, the sun bleached and grim remains of Phoenicians and Romans and Crusaders and others who knew Tyre as one of the great cities of the ancient world. In June 1967, Emir Shah began excavating what he thought was another ancient road, He soon discovered, however, that he had come upon a Roman hippodrome dating from the second century AD, a massive arena capable of holding 20,000 spectators. It was one of the largest in the Roman Empire, he told me, as we traveled in a car over the chariot track of the hippodrome. An ancient text refers to it as the Circus of Tyre. Digging at Tyre continues while 14 miles north at Es work is underway to uncover the ruins of the Phoenician and biblical city of Zarephath. Supported in part by a grant from the National Geographic Society, the excavation is directed by Dr. James V. Pritchard, Associate Director of the University Museum, University of Pennsylvania. The project will probably take six years. Zarephath was known to the Egyptians as long ago as the 13th century BC, and in biblical times, the prophet Elijah was sent there during a great famine. The long-range dig began last summer with penetration to the massive stone key of the city's harbor as it stood in Roman times. Antonio Asal Attar is no archaeologist but he too works with the land as a farmer. I met him in Ipsarre, a picturesque town in the north where Khalil Gibran, the famous symbolist painter, mystical poet and author of The Prophet, was born and lies buried. I was in Absherre on a Saturday morning, market day, where a festival of noise filled the narrow streets. The yelp of full-throated haggling over prices rose above the bleat of a dozen sheep being driven through the main square. Clutches of children kicked cans, popped paper bags, and fell screaming with the agony of play soldier wounds. Many, I noticed, had blonder red hair, a revelation for one of Lebanese extraction who went through childhood longing for a freckle. Antonio was in Pshare this Saturday to sell his truckload of vegetables. With him was one of his sons. It is difficult for us to make a living like this, the son said. We have to work very hard to get this one small crop. And look, you see yourself. Not many are buying today. I left Lebanon once to live in South America, but returned, he added. Now I may have to leave again, and this time I will take my mother and father with me. His four brothers, he said, all live in Australia. The father told me that never in his 69 years had he been more than an hour's drive from his village. I asked him if he could adjust to a new life in a new country. He shrugged, touched a finger to his guardsman mustache, and replied, How can I tell? I do not want to leave Lebanon because it is my country a country to love, but a man cannot be happy when all his sons are away. For all its importance as a major provider of services in the Near East, Lebanon remains closely aligned to an agricultural heritage spanning 7,000 years of history. Although agriculture accounts for only 12% of the national income, it employs almost half the working population. There is only one Beirut teeming with banks and a whirl in business but the villages dependent on the soil for survival number in the hundreds. The government in recent years has stepped in to aid the struggle for survival, with programs aimed at keeping Antonio Asa and others like him on their farms. One such effort is called the Green Plan. The Green Plan has set as one of its goals the reforestation of much of the land. Once, Lebanon was blanketed with cedar trees, from which Solomon obtained the wood for his temple. But of these majestic giants, only a few small groves remain the largest being a stand of 400 near Psarre now thousands of seedlings are being planted each year under auspices of the green plan the green plan has put many farmers back to work said najib hamdan if it does nothing else it will have succeeded the plan has done more though much more najib hamdan a prosperous and progressive young farmer had invited me on a tour of the principal agricultural regions Following a visit to the coast just south of Beirut, where citrus fruit and bananas are among the major crops, we turned east toward the interior. Najib shifted his car into low gear, and we climbed a mountain road kinked with nightmarish curves. We began to pass patches of snow among the juniper and almond trees, but below and behind us, only 30 minutes away, stretched the southern coast and waters warm enough for swimming. Najib graduated with a degree in fruit production from California State Polytechnic College. He grows 150,000 pounds of head lettuce a year, and all is purchased on contract by an oil company in Saudi Arabia. He grows potatoes and tomatoes, lemons and oranges. He does this not only in the highly cultivated valleys, but also in fields once freighted with rocks and on the sides of mountains. Because Lebanon is a country of only 4,015 square miles, smaller than any of our 50 states except Delaware and Rhode Island, many crops are grown on the mountainsides. To do this, farmers began, centuries ago, to terrace the slopes with stone retaining walls. Some 175,000 acres of the terraced land was abandoned, however, as rural people moved to the cities or followed their sons to distant countries. The walls collapsed and the soil, accumulated through generations of backbreaking labor, washed down to the sea. The Green Plan made tractors available to rebuild the terraces, together with counseling on land reclamation and development. If the farmer is too shy to come to us for help, We go to him, an official of the plan told me. In the past four years, our work has spread through almost a third of the villages of Lebanon. Mountain land restored to productive use rose all around us as Najib and I continued our grinding drive across the midsection of the country, heading for Lebanon's richest agricultural area. Down there, Najib said, nodding his head to the left, the Beka. It reached as far as I could see, to Syria, it seemed. Wide and flat, and stacked with the gifts of fertile earth. Lebanon's valleys are many, but it is the Bekaa that the country wears like a green sash of honor. Pushing up the back of the country for eighty miles, this northeasternmost extension of the Great Earth Valley gave Imperial Rome much of its grain. Before that, even, a long roster of conquering peoples passed through the Bekaa. Some paused, then went on, a few stayed, all tasted of its sweetness. Each spring, the Bekaa attracts hordes of Bedouin. Most of them come from the Syrian desert, walking more than a week, almost always at night, to escape their approaching summer heat. With them come 60,000 to 70,000 Oasi sheep, a breed distinguished by its tail, which resembles a ping-pong paddle of fat. Looking down over the broad sweep of the plain, I could see the black goat-hair tents of the Bedouins set on the fringes of the quiltwork of crops. Many of the fields were given over to cereals, others to potatoes and onions, sugar beets and grapes, and hashish. Hashish is the dried resin of the same Indian hemp plant, cannabis indica, from which marijuana is derived. It is a stronger drug, however. Hashish is an illegal commodity in Lebanon, but law enforcement measures are aimed more against the distributor than against the grower. One objective of the Green Plan is to get hashish farmers to grow sunflowers instead. So far, this phase of the plan has not progressed as rapidly as hoped. Future maneuvers in the war against the growing of hashish may include attacks from the air, Spraying the fields with an agent that renders the drug repulsive to both taste and smell. Hashish will grow on land that's too dry for almost anything else, Najib told me. I know people in the Bakah who switched to other crops as soon as they got irrigation water on their lands. I'm sure others would do the same. The key to it is water. To help meet this need for water, work began in 1957 on a project of unprecedented scope for a country the size of Lebanon. Development of the nation's longest river, the Litani. Rising in the northern part of the Bekaa, the Litani flows south and west for nearly 70 miles before prying through the coastal mountain range and giving itself to the Mediterranean. At no place does the river leave the boundaries of the country. One phase of the project recently completed at a cost of 100 million dollars, produces hydroelectric power. A 200-foot high rock-filled dam backs up a lake that holds nearly 300 million cubic yards of water. When released, this water plunges down through a series of tunnels and penstocks, powering turbines placed like steps on the mountain slopes. Eventually, the Laetone project is expected to provide about 600 million kilowatt-hours of power per year. Even now, The work has gone far toward lighting the nation. Of the nearly 2,000 villages in Lebanon, said Salah Halwani, general manager of the project, about 1,500 now have electricity. Another phase of the work involves irrigation. At present, only about 20,000 acres of Bekaa Valley land is under irrigation, utilizing water not only from the reservoir but also from some of the many torrential springs in the mountains. A network of sprinklers and underground pipes to be installed throughout the valley will eventually bring the total of irrigated acres to 75,000. Drought has scarred some of the rural villages, and so have the many earthquakes that have struck Lebanon. Still, the residents maintain a joyous kinship with the land. No matter what village I visited, there was always someone eager to show me around. At a place called Al-Fakia, Ahmad Saleh even closed his barber shop to act as my guide. Al-Fakia nestles at the bottom of a gorge, and the old houses sit on steep slopes. Both Muslims and Christians live there, and their places of worship, church and mosque, face each other across the village's single street. Almost all the women of the village are rug weavers. The men do not do this work, Ahmad said. Only the women. My grandmother is 115 years old, and she worked on the looms until two years ago. Just as Al-Fakia is known for its rugs, so are other villages singled out for a specialty al for lemonade, Almina for fried fish, zgharta for family feuds, jazine for cutlery, and Dreshin for the Basbous brothers. Michel, Alfred, and Joseph Basbous are Lebanon's foremost sculptors. They work outdoors mostly, on top of a mountain overlooking Jounieh Bay, an incredible blue and placid pocket of the Mediterranean. Their works, in stone, metal, and wood, are set out in fields. Some are abstract, graceful with swirls and curls of cryptic expression. And some are traditional, including life size figures with faces upturned as if to use the nearby clouds as powder puffs. The serenity and beauty of the mountaintop setting, Michel, oldest of the brothers, told me, are as essential as the hammer and chisel in his work. As sculpture and the Basbous brothers are associated with Rashin, so is Kibbe with the town of Zahle. Considered the national dish of Lebanon, Kibbe consists basically of lamb and burgul, crushed wheat and the finest kibbeh of all is made and served in the restaurants of Zahli. The lamb and wheat are pounded for about an hour in a large stone mortar, then kneaded and seasoned. I asked the waiter to bring me kibbeh meaning I wanted to eat it raw, like steak tartare. Then you know kibbeh, he said, smiling. I know, and have known, ever since that day long ago, when packed off to a Boy Scout outing with a mother-made meal, I munched on kibbeh beside a campfire, while a fellow trooper unglued a mouthful of peanut butter sandwich to ask, Say, what you eating? Some kind of scrapple or something? Seldom was I invited to a dinner in Lebanon when kibbeh wasn't served. At the village of El mukhtara I ate the national dish at a long table in a large drafty room of a very old castle. El mukhtara is the seat of power of Lebanon's Druze community, a fierce mountain people who practice a unique religion. My host at the castle was Kamal Jumblat, political leader of the approximately 140,000 Druzes in the country. Parts of the Jumblat castle date from the eighteenth century when much of Lebanon was ruled by the Druzes. Down through the years, decay has outpaced remodeling and additions, and as I sat in a reception hall of the great house, flakes of plaster fell from the ceiling. The Druze religion combines elements of Christianity and Islam, but for the most part it is shrouded in secrecy and mysticism. A religion is unknown to many, Kamal Jumblav told me, even partially unknown among us. To understand it, one must relate it to the whole sweep of history. A spare angular man with brooding eyes, Mr. Jamblat finds inner strength in the teachings of Mohandas Gandhi. His political views gain little favor among the Christian population, but few deny that he commands widespread support from the Druzes, the most colorful of Lebanon's mountain people. I ate Kibbetu while dining with Fayruz, Lebanon's leading singer. Earlier, I had heard her singing at an outdoor religious service in the village of Antilles. Though the program was not to begin until 6 in the evening, people began to arrive shortly after noon. One woman told me that she had come from Cyprus just to hear Fayrouz Others came from throughout Lebanon, and by the time the program started, more than 10,000 persons were jammed into the village square. Fayrouz draws such crowds wherever she performs. Her voice is possessed of a crystalline purity, and somehow she has managed to exercise the shrillness from Arabic music. But most of all, I ate kibbeh at the homes of my relatives. Ate it and ate it until one day, when I could eat it no more, I heard one cousin whisper to another, I think he broke his stomach. Three of my cousins accompanied me on the journey from Beirut up the coast to Tripoli and the search for the house where my mother was born. Children by the road waved for motorists to stop and buy daisies and other wildflowers fashioned into necklaces. Tripoli, Lebanon's second city, is often referred to as the capital of the north. It stands as a showcase of Arab architecture spanning many centuries. But the dominant structure of this ancient city, founded about 800 BC, is the magnificent crusader castle of Saint-Gilles, erected in the 12th century. Guided by the recollections of a cousin who thought he knew the location of my mother's birthplace, we walked through an old castle like section of the city. Then, from an alleyway where two girls were playing hopscotch on a 1,500-year-old piece of Roman mosaic flooring, we stepped into a courtyard taken over by weeds. The house stood before us, tall with towers and balconies, but drab and musty with age. Worn stairs of purple-veined marble and an oriel window of stained glass told of past elegance. A woman wearing a long black dress and a man's double-breasted suit coat appeared in the doorway and invited us in. She was born in the house, she told me, and she lived there all of her 80-odd years. She too was a cousin. From the top of the house, I looked over the ancient city, across a great sweep of orange groves reaching to the sea. The sun was high and warm, and from where I stood... Lebanon seemed at peace. No demonstrations, no traffic jams, no swirling eddies of political intrigue. The old woman joined me on the roof, and in the manner of elderly Arabs, she hunkered down. I hunkered beside her, and together we shared a delicious silence. When she did speak, she said she would like to fix me something to take on the plane going home. The next day, after watching the coastline of Lebanon fade from view in the window of the airliner, I settled back and looked at the package she had prepared for me. Somehow I knew what it contained. I put the package aside and tried to occupy my mind with other thoughts. No use. Kibbe, I found, tastes just as good at 37,000 feet as it does around a Boy Scout campfire or in the dining room of a run-down castle in the mountains of Lebanon. The End So the first time I read this article, I was taken back by the access this author got, he got to speak to such high-profile personalities in Lebanon, from the president, to Fayrouz, to Jamblat, to Emir Shab. like, it... it <laughs> such a collection of people that you get the privilege to speak to and then put together in this essay of, like, no, wait, I said I wasn't going to influence your impression of this, so never mind, I'm not going to continue... But like I said, this article needed to be shared because so many people mentioned in it are part of this podcast and part of the nation's history. It's important to hear about all these ambitions that were documented in 1970 in comparison to where we are today and the promises that we have heard over the years and the things that we have been told by people in power. All of these projects that are going to come to light that we never actually see happen It's important to see these trends repeating and see just how far we've come and how many things are still the same. So if you want to discuss this article, please let me know. You know what, maybe I'm just going to start a thread and I'll send it in the next newsletter so we can talk about this. Because there are a lot of parts of this that can be deconstructed and unpacked and investigated deeper. So yeah, I think I'm going to do that. Anyway, let me know what you thought of this episode. And until October, take care, everybody. I'll see you in your inboxes. If you want to know more about what's happening with the podcast and other things before Bacchus, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, but also to the newsletter. You can go on the website and a pop-up will appear or just shoot me a DM or an email or anything like that. Info at b4bacchus.com. That's info at b 4 backuscom B-F-O-R-B-A-C-C-H-U-S dot com. This is Farah signing off for the b 4 Backus podcast.